everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. My name is Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. And I just wanted to apologize for the delay in between episodes. Normally, we try to release them about every two weeks, but I have been traveling. I'm currently in Latvia, where I will be. I didn't mean to woo. I'm not excited. I miss her. Um, yes, well, I will be here until June, so we're still figuring out how the international podcast recording situation works. <laughs> I think we're doing great. It only took us an hour to get started, which is about as long as our usual episodes, I feel like. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so honestly, this might just make no difference. <laughs> yeah. This is our 14th episode, and today we're going to be talking about Pam Munoz Ryan's book, Esperanza Rising. It was published in 2000, and it's a middle-grade YA novel about a 13-year-old Mexican girl who moves to California with her mother during the Great Depression after her father is murdered. The book was generally quite well-received by critics. Publishers Weekly said that, quote, Ryan fluidly juxtaposes world events, such as Mexico's post-revolution tensions, the arrival of Oklahoma's Dust Bowl victims, and the struggles between the U.S. government and Mexican workers trying to organize with one family's will to survive, while introducing readers to Spanish words and Mexican customs. The reception from Kirkus Reviews was a little bit more mixed. They said, Ryan's narrative has an epic tone, characters that develop little and predictably, and a romantic patina that often undercuts the harshness of her story. But her style is engaging, her character is appealing, and her story is one that, though a deep-rooted part of the history of California, the Depression, and thus the nation, is little heard in children's fiction. It bears telling to a wider audience. Yes, and so we're going to get more into the details of that in this episode. The book is also the winner of the Pura Belpre Medal for Outstanding Children's Literature that celebrates the Latino cultural experience. One of the things about this book that makes it really special is the way that it is about a part of American history and Mexican history that isn't often written about in American children's literature or YA literature. And even though the book is now, it's I guess it's about 21 years old, so it's not a new book. Whoa. Yeah, doesn't that make you feel old? Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. That was really thoughtful of you. We are rotting. <laughs> Even though the book is about 21 years old, there hasn't been a lot of books since then that have been about this particular topic, the Mexican Revolution, labor rights, farm workers in California, or Mexican repatriation. And so it's a very popular book in schools because it touches on a lot of historical events that are not written about that much in children's fiction. So the book... read it in fifth grade. Oh, you did. I don't know. I can't remember if I read it for school or not. I don't think I did, but I'm pretty sure I read it. Wait, what? (laughs) Oh, oh, like before this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I'm pretty sure I read it. (laughs) You're like, it might have been a different book. And you start, like, elaborately describing the plot of Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, we do have fun. All right. (laughs) Moving into our About the Author... So Pam Munoz Ryan is an American author and the 2018 U.S. nominee for the International Hans Christian Andersen Award. Ooh. Ooh, and another writer that we read has been nominated for this award. Oh, I think it was uh, Lois Lowry. Oh, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Lois Lowry, who has won 
damn near every award. Yeah. But anyway, shall we? Anne's Christy Anderson Award. Yes. She is also the author of Echo, a Newbery honor book, and a recipient of the Kirkus Prize. So she's written over 40 books, including the novels Esperanza Rising, Becoming Naomi Leon, Riding Freedom, Paint the Wind, The Dreamer, Echo, and Manana Land. She's also the recipient of the National Education Association Civil and Human Rights Award, the Virginia Hamilton Literary Award for Multicultural Literature, and is twice the recipient of the Pura Belpre Medal and the Willa Cather Award. Esperanza Rising was commissioned as a play by the Minneapolis Children's Theater and has been performed. <gasps> I didn't know that. I know. Isn't that fun? Uh, so it's been performed in many venues around the U.S., and I would like to see it. Yes. What's that gif of that? woman i would like, like to see it i would like to see it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i was like surprised that this book is so well received and has been around for 20 years and there's never been a, an attempt at a movie version yeah um because, that is a bit of a crime but we know why that is yeah <laughs> it's because hollywood only realized that people of color they're gonna exist, hire like, like emma roberts to play <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, all right, so Pam Munoz Ryan was born and raised in Bakersfield, California, and she holds a bachelor's and master's degree from San Diego State University and lives near San Diego with her family. Many of her stories reflect her half Mexican heritage. And I always am interested in learning more about how these writers came to be writers because while, you know, often you'll hear about children's book writers who have been writing ever since they were little kids. You'll also hear about children's book writers who t kind of took a surprisingly long time to start writing seriously. Mm. And Ryan is one of those authors. She says, after my children were born, I stayed home with them for almost 12 years, substituting part-time. When my youngest went to kindergarten, I accepted a job as the director of an early childhood program. At the same time, I went back to school one night a week to get my master's degree in post-secondary education with the intention of someday teaching children's literature. A few weeks before I finished my master's, one of my professors asked me to stay after class. She wanted to know if I'd ever considered professional writing as a career. She encouraged me. Coincidentally, a few weeks later, a colleague asked me if I would help her write a book for adults. I could not stop thinking about the possibility that I could be a writer. The seed had been planted and wouldn't stop growing. I began to write stories for children. I submitted manuscripts to many children's publishers, but with no luck. I wish I knew how many submissions I made, but I didn't keep track. There were so many rejections that, at the time, it would have been painful to count. I finally contracted a literary agent. My first children's book, 100 as a Family, was published in 1994. It's a good little story about following your dreams. And like Esperanza says, don't be afraid to start over. Yup. All right, so let's summarize that plot in case it's been a while yeah. or never since you guys have read this book. Y'all ready for this? Da, na, na, da, da. So, Esperanza Ortega is a 13-year-old girl living on El Rancho de las Rosas, her family's ranch in Aguas Calientes, Mexico. And she is the cherished only child of her wealthy parents, landowners Sixto and Ramona Ortega. And she also lives with her abuelita, her grandmother, and servants Hortensia and Alfonso, and their 16-year-old son, Miguel. Her family's very wealthy, as we said. She has expensive clothes, she attends private school, and is catered to pretty much 24-7 by her family's servants. Also, interestingly, I believe this is the second book that we've read for this show with a character named 
uh, Hortensia. Wasn't that the name oh, of the yes. girl in Matilda with the boil on her nose? Yes, 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 yes. Very good. And since she was British, she probably pronounced it emphasis. Hortensia. Hortensia. <laughs> but we won't pronounce. That was a hate crime. <laughs> yes, we will not be doing that. <laughs> So the novel begins in 1930 in Mexico, 10 years following the Mexican Revolution. And Sixto and Ramona, who are Esperanza's parents, are considered to be kind and generous landowners who treat their workers well. But tensions are still high between the rich and the poor. And at the end of the grape harvest, a lot of the time in this book is measured in the seasons of fruit and vegetables. And at the end of the grape harvest, the night before Esperanza's birthday, her father is ambushed and killed by bandits while he's returning home from the fields, which is an incredibly painful moment in the book. And after the funeral, Esperanza and her mother learn that uh, he left them the house, but since land isn't typically left to women, the ranch is now uh, the property of his brother, Tio, or Uncle Luis. And Luis and his brother Marco try to convince Ramona to marry him in order to remain on the ranch, but Ramona refuses. Yes, and then... Tio Luis is gross. <laughs> yeah, they do not care for him, or the other brother whose name I don't remember. Marco, I think. And Luis yes. is also the mayor, Mm -hmm. of Aguascalientes, so he has a lot of power. Yeah, and so Ramona refuses his marriage proposal, and then after that, her house is burned down with her and her mother and Esperanza inside, and they all three escape, but Esperanza's grandmother, Abuelita, mm -hmm. is injured, and the burning down of the house is heavily implied to be Luis's doing. So we've got another children's book focused on arson. Oh, boy. So obviously now they're left with nothing. They have lost any wealth that they had. The house that was in their name is gone, along with everything inside it. And Ramona seemingly accepts Luis's offer. But meanwhile, she tells Esperanza in secret that they are going to go with Alfonso, Hortensia, and Miguel to the U.S. to find work. And that Abuelita, who was injured in the fire, will stay with her sisters in a nearby convent until she's ready to join them. Yes, so they have to leave town in secret because if Tio Luis knows that they're leaving, he will try to stop them. So Alfonso, Hortensia, Miguel, and Esperanza and Ramona ride in a wagon towards California and Esperanza and her mother have to hide in the bottom of the wagon because, they, again, they don't want Tio Luis to know that they're leaving. Then they board a train once they get to the train station and leave Mexico, where Esperanza struggles to accept that she is now a peasant and continues to look down on the poor people traveling alongside them, while Ramona, her mother, is trying to stay positive in accepting their situation and disapproves of Esperanza's snobbishness. So, arriving in California, Esperanza, Ramona, Alfonso, Hortensia, and Miguel join Juan and Josefina, who are Alfonso's brother and sister-in-law, at a field workers camp. And Esperanza is uh, pretty quickly targeted and teased by a girl named Marta for, quote, going from a princess to a peasant. And in keeping with that, Esperanza is disappointed when she finds out that they'll be sharing a small cramped cabin with her mother and her former servants. Yeah, I know that she went through something very traumatic, and I was also a child, but it does take her 
quite a while to get it through her skull that she is no longer rich. <laughs> At every turn, she's like, what? <laughs> huh? <laughs> Ramona is a champ in this book. Mm-hmm. Ramona adjusts swimmingly. But yeah, Esperanza won't let a child on the train touch her doll. She's grouchy about the clothes that she has to wear. Yeah, she doesn't seem to have been able to fully grasp what's happened to her. But, you know, it is pretty and bad. A lot of it comes, I think, from her notion that Abuelita has some money of her own mm-hmm. that is like tied up in a bank that is owned, I believe, by uh, Tia Luis's other brother. So she does have this idea that they will regain their wealth through Abuelita and that she hasn't completely lost her station. But for now, she's at a field workers camp and she's too young to work in the fields. So instead, she's expected to look after Juan and Josefina's twin babies, Pepe and Lupe. And she's helped by their older daughter, Isabel, who I believe is nine. But Isabel is about to begin school, so she needs to teach Esperanza the housekeeping skills that she'll need to learn. Mm-hmm. And Esperanza has already gone to school and graduated from, like... <laughs> from 13-year-old school? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so uh, this leads to Esperanza embarrassing herself in front of the community when she is unable to sweep the camp platform. And Marta humiliates her further by calling her Cinderella. So Esperanza is really, like, incapable of doing basic chores because she's never been taught or expected to do them. Yeah, there's a scene in, like, that evening. They're getting ready for the camp's uh, Jamaica, which is a party, where Esperanza expects Hortensia to bathe her. I think she takes off, like, her dress, and then she, like, goes and stands next to the tub. Yeah, and, like, holds her arms out, right? Yeah, like, she's waiting for her to, like, you know, unbutton the rest of her clothes. Mm -hmm. It's like, damn. (laughs) I love Isabel. She's watching, and she's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, I love her. So that night at the Jamaica, Esperanza watches Marta and her friends attempt to rally the other field workers to strike for better working conditions, but a lot of the other workers are angered by the talk of strike because they know that that could risk losing work and losing money. So Esperanza begins to adjust to her new life over the following weeks, learning to take care of the babies and do household chores, but still fantasizes about Abuelita coming with her money to raise her and Ramona out of poverty. And she tells uh, Isabel, she's like, you know, we'll get a house <laughs> and maybe Hortensia and Alfonso and Miguel will come and work for us again. <laughs> it's like, bitch, you have got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout um, the novel, there is there's an interesting running thread in her relationship with Miguel, who is 16 and has essentially grown up with Esperanza, where they are friends and... You know, they have this interesting, almost would-be brother-sister relationship, except for the fact that when she was young, Esperanza had mentioned that she was going to marry Miguel someday, and her parents had talked to her about the class difference between them. And then she marches down and tells Miguel everything they told her, and is like, we stand on different sides of a river. So there's an, an interesting relationship there, now that they are essentially equals, but Esperanza is still struggling to... To make sense of that. Right. And Miguel is not quick to forget what she said to him when they were not equals. 
understandably. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty obnoxious thing to say. But... <laughs> Jesus H. Christ. But one day, the camp is caught in a terrifying dust storm, after which Esperanza's mother cannot stop coughing. And a month later, they bring Ramona, Esperanza's mother, who is now very ill, to a doctor who tells them that she has contracted valley fever from the dust spores in her lungs. And she is admitted to the hospital, and Esperanza begins to work in the fields to earn money for her family. And she also begins to save money for Abuelita's travel. And this is where we see Esperanza starting to starting to grow up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, tensions are rising in the camp. There are migrants from Oklahoma who are beginning to arrive and are costing many of the Mexican immigrants their jobs. And they're also receiving better conditions in their own camps. So they are rumored to have indoor plumbing, hot water, uh, even a swimming pool. And at his job on the railroad, Miguel is passed over for more technical jobs in favor of white workers, which um, frustrates Esperanza a lot. And strikers, including Marta and her family, insist that the workers unify and refuse to work in order to demand better conditions. But again, many of the field workers, including Esperanza, are worried about losing their only source of income. And so after a large demonstration by the strikers, the farm owners call immigration officials to round up the strikers and deport them to Mexico, even if they are American citizens. And Esperanza finds Marta hiding in a shed and agrees to protect her by hiding her from the officials. And Marta thanks Esperanza and apologizes for misjudging her. And so it's a really kind of beautiful moment where both of these girls come to understand the different ways in which they're both just trying their best to do the best Mm -hmm. for their family and to survive. And um, rather than being judgmental of one another, they just help each other, which is really nice. It is sweet. And at this point, Esperanza is, you know, still dealing with the trauma of all these events leading up to this day. She's terrified for her mother's health. She's angry about the injustices to the Mexican workers, especially in comparison to the white Oklahomans. And after a fight with the the two families, she storms out of the cabin. And when Miguel follows her and insists that things will get better, Esperanza tells him that even in the U.S., he's still a peasant. And Miguel angrily responds that she still believes she is a queen. And the next day, uh, the families realize that Miguel has left to find work in Northern California. Yeah. So this is where we see Esperanza get really kind of disillusioned with the idea of America as a land of opportunity. Because all she's seeing is injustice. And so Esperanza's mother, though, finally recovers and is allowed to return home. And Esperanza is very excited to show her mother the money that she has earned um, working in the fields while her mother was sick because Esperanza wants to earn enough to bring Abuelita to them. And so Esperanza goes to get the money orders that she's been saving, but to her dismay, she finds that the money is missing and the only person who could have taken it is Miguel. And so Esperanza is understandably furious So weeks later, Miguel's family receives a letter from him asking them to meet him at the train station and to bring Esperanza. And when he gets off of the train, he is joined by Abuelita, revealing that he used the money orders to travel to Mexico and retrieve her in secret. Hooray! Hooray! And this is his way of showing Esperanza that there is hope and that things will get better. 
And back at the camp, Ramona, Esperanza's mother, is obviously overjoyed to be reunited with Abuelita. And Esperanza tells her mother, who of course has been in the hospital, and her grandmother, everything that's happened over the past year, using the seasons of fruits and vegetables to explain the passage of time um, and everything that they've been through. And later, Miguel and Esperanza repair their relationship, and they go to the foothills to listen to the heartbeat of the earth, which is something that Esperanza used to do with her father. And the novel wraps up on her 14th birthday, so exactly one year after Papa's death, where Esperanza celebrates with her friends and family and expresses gratitude for the things that she does have, uh, her loved ones, her family reunited, and hope. Yes. So I know we have the favorite excerpts that we usually do first, but I was wondering, could we maybe talk about some historical context? Absolutely. Okay, because I think... I will say, reading this book in fifth grade was a bit hard because I had no historical context. Right. So for all you dum-dums out here, listen up. (laughs) Yeah, so this is something that we talked about when we read um, When My Name Was Kyoko way back. That is a great way for American children who are not really taught about world history to have access to these other kinds of histories. But, yeah, if you don't have the context, a lot of it is going to confuse you. And so... The book takes place about 10 years after the Mexican Revolution, which is a very bloody and complicated struggle. It went from 1910 to approximately 1920 and was a struggle among several factions in constantly shifting alliances, which resulted ultimately in the end of a 30-year dictatorship in Mexico and the establishment of a constitutional republic. So that is the short and fast way that the Encyclopedia Britannica explains it. To go into a little bit more detail, there were a number of groups in the revolution led by revolutionaries, including Francisco Madero, Pascual Orozco, Pancho Villa, and Emiliano Zapata participated in the long and costly conflict. Though a constitution drafted in 1917 formalized many of the reforms sought by rebel groups, periodic violence continued into the 1930s, and there was still a lot of wealth disparity in the country. The motives for waging the Mexican Revolution grew out of the belief that a few wealthy landowners could no longer continue the old ways of Spanish colonial rule, uh, which was a feudal-like system called La Encomienda. That system needed to be replaced by a modern one in which those who actually worked the land should uh, should extract its wealth through their labor. So that's the Mexican Revolution. So that's kind of the backdrop of what's been going on in this country that we're in at the beginning of the novel. And that periodic violence that we mentioned is allegedly what kills Esperanza's father. He's murdered by rebel bandits. However, I think we can also infer that it is possible that his greedy, evil brothers had something to do with his murder, given how anxious they are to inherit his wealth. I literally never even thought about that. I didn't think about it either until I read um, until I read a, one, an academic article that mentioned it. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's maybe even sadder. Yeah, right? And a good lesson to all of us about choosing our husbands wisely and if they have mm. evil brothers, particularly <laughs> multiple of them. Yeah, right? Not to victim blame, but like, geez. <laughs> If your husband is great, but everyone else in his family is, you know, evil. I don't know. Is it worth it? Maybe not. Yep. 
So another aspect of the historical context of this novel that's really important is what's often referred to as Mexican repatriation. And so this is an aspect of American history that is not really, or I did not learn about it in school. We did not cover it in our unit about the Great Depression in any of my classes on American Mm -hmm. history. But the author of this book, Pam Munoz Ryan, has a really wonderful afterward section or addendum to the book where she talks about the inspiration behind the story and about Mexican repatriation and this um, horrible crime that was committed against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans and people who were suspected of being Mexican or Mexican-Americans in the 1930s. So according to a 2019 Time article by Jasmine Aguilera, it is estimated that about 2 million people, and there is some discrepancy about that number. Some historians think it's closer to 1 million. It's hard to know because this wasn't done in a way that was officially legal, but it's estimated that as many as 2 million people, up to 60% of whom might have been American citizens of Mexican descent, were removed to Mexico as part of a Depression-era effort known as repatriation. And this is these are numbers that come from the state of California, although the exact number is unknown and estimates range. So basically, this happened because um, as the U.S. economic situation declined, especially after the st- stock market crash in 1929, we saw immigrants in this country, especially immigrants who were racialized as other, like Mexicans, being treated as scapegoats in communities throughout the country, which is a very familiar narrative that we still hear to this day. These immigrants are coming and they're taking your jobs. As this racist rhetoric spread, the idea also spread that Mexicans would be better off in Mexico around their own people and their own culture. Of course, ignoring the fact that these are people who fled Mexico largely because they were in dire economic circumstances or feared for their safety, like Esperanza and her mother. Basically, local and state governments started deporting Mexicans and Mexican-Americans en masse from the United States. And research that has been done since then showed that this repatriation um, did not lead to any kind of improvement in the economy. You know, that it... Shocking no one. Yeah, so... Not that that would have made it justified, but just, I think, further points to the um, The racism yeah behind the thing yep the real drive the real motivation exactly so francisco balderrama a co-author with raymond rodriguez of decade of betrayal mexican repatriation in the 1930s explains that no distinction was made between mexican immigrants arriving with documents which the majority did Uh, their children born in the U.S. and the Mexican-American families who had lived in the West and Southwest for generations before those territories became part of the U.S. So those people who didn't cross the border, but whom the border crossed. So that population was regarded as not being part of the American community, Balderrama says. What develops is this notion and idea that a Mexican is a Mexican. And that was particularly horrifying for me to read, the thought that that you could be deported or repatriated is the verb that they sometimes use from your from your ancestral land you know that these are native people yep horrifying Mm -hmm. but of course we have a long history of 
doing that in this country. So the Herbert Hoover administration announced a series of deportation programs and began conducting large public raids in major cities. And these raids also swept up, like we said, U.S. citizens of Mexican descent. And though no federal law or act was passed allowing for the mass deportation of U.S. citizens, local governments in cities like Los Angeles and Detroit, as well as companies like Southern Pacific Railroad and the Ford Motor Company, also took it upon themselves to begin putting people on trains to Mexico, ignoring the fact that only the federal government held the power of deportation. That is horrifying. It is horrifying. It's horrifying, too, because it has some parallels with Japanese internment. Yeah, that's a good point. Approximately 10 years apart. But yeah, I mean, this idea that this basically hysteria of a racialized other can result Mm -hmm. in that other being rounded up like animals. Like cattle. Yeah. So in 2005, about a decade after the publication of the first edition of Decade of Betrayal, The state of California passed the Apology Act for the 1930s Mexican Repatriation Program, which declares that the state of California apologizes for the fundamental violations of their basic civil liberties and constitutional rights committed during the period of illegal deportation and coerced immigration. The state of California regrets the suffering and hardship those individuals and their families endured as a direct result of the government-sponsored repatriation program of the 1930s. I love this is just called the Apology Act. I know. Or like, this is what we have to offer. <laughs> Acknowledgement is a, is a step. Yes. And I feel like it would feel a lot more meaningful if the border wasn't still violently enforced in American politics. Idea. Yeah. But I mean, even to this day, one of the things that this, I believe it's this article that talks about is that this still happens. People are still, who are American mm-hmm. citizens, are still taken in by ICE and sometimes detained for months, and yep, it's just horrible. And so many Chicano history programs throughout the country teach the events of Mexican repatriation, but the history remains widely unknown to many Americans. So one other really important piece of context for this book is the way that it addresses the labor movement in the United States. The National Endowment for the Humanities website has a webpage that discusses Esperanza Rising as a teaching tool and Esperanza Rising's relationship to the labor movement. So do you want to read that quote, Terry? Esperanza Rising is also set in the midst of the Great Depression that affected much of the world in the 1930s. These displaced families were the Okies, made famous by John Steinbeck in his Grapes of Wrath, and also referred to in Esperanza Rising. The Okies were as desperate for work as the Mexican farm laborers, and their growing numbers were creating a labor glut in California. Farmers and growers were able to take advantage of this situation and reduce labor costs, paying lower wages and providing only the bare minimum in the way of accommodations. Some of the farm laborers attempted to form a union and encourage other laborers to strike for better working conditions and higher wages. In time, the U.S. government stepped in and attempted to force repatriation of many of the Mexican farm laborers, some of whom were born in the U.S. or had become citizens. The U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service conducted raids and deported many thousands of Mexican laborers and their families. So that just points to one other thing that's important about these deportations is the ways in which they were used to break strikes and to break the progress of a growing labor movement. We see it pretty deliberately happen in the book where the strikers are targeted. So there's a scene where Esperanza is working with Hortensia and 
Josefina, where they're packing asparagus. And suddenly, in the distance, a caravan of gray buses and police cars headed fast through the sh toward the shed, dust flying in their wakes. Immigration, said Josefina. It's a sweep. The picket signs lay on the ground, discarded, and like a mass of marbles that had already been hit, the strikers scattered into the fields and toured the boxcars on the tracks, anywhere they could hide. The buses and cars screeched to a stop, and immigration officials and police, carrying clubs, jumped out and ran after them. And the women huddle in the shed, and Esperanza is terrified that she'll be taken, and she says, I cannot leave Mama. Hortensia heard the panic in her voice. No, no, Esperanza, they are not here for us. The growers need the workers. That is why the company guards us. What will they do with them? asked Esperanza. They'll take them to Los Angeles and put them on a train to El Paso, Texas, and then to Mexico, said Josefina. But some of them are citizens, said Esperanza. It doesn't matter. They're causing problems for the government. They're talking about forming a farm workers union, and the government and the growers don't like that. So as Hortensia said, the farm needs workers. They are specifically targeting the strikers. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, a lot of the unionizing and organizing efforts from this time period were not successful because deportation is used as a weapon to break strikes. But we see this fight taken up by future generations. For example, in 1962, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta founded the National Farm Workers Association and later created the United Farm Workers and Chavez led nonviolent labor strikes and week-long fasts. Protesters faced violence, arrest, and prosecution. And the movement established workers' right to organize and secured better pay and working conditions on many farms. Yeah, really emphasizing the ways in which this fight is multi-generational and actually, you know, still ongoing. Absolutely. So now that we have some a better sense of the context of what's going on in the world of this book... We wanted to share a few of our favorite moments from the book. I don't know if I can say it's one of my favorite moments because it's so incredibly painful, but uh, one of the parts that has stuck with me, but ever since I read this in fifth grade, was the scene where Esperanza waits for her father to return the night before her birthday. It's evening and they're watching the road for a dust cloud that would mean that the riders are near, but nothing's coming and Esperanza pricks her finger on a thorn which is supposed to signal bad luck. And she and her mom talk about that for a minute, knowing that that could just mean, you know, that they'll break an egg or something like that. But the tension just slowly builds. They start to talk a little bit about bandits that have been in the area. You can feel that something is wrong. And eventually, Tio Luis and Tio Marco arrive with Papa's belt that they found and actually, I think it's just the belt buckle that they found in the fields. And it says, Mama's face whitened. She examined it, turning it over and over in her hand. It may mean nothing, she said. Then, ignoring them, she turned toward the window and began pacing again, still, cl still clutching the belt buckle. And they start to light candles and sing prayers. And you can just, it always makes my stomach kind of turn. Just because you can feel the anxiety and the fear. And eventually, it wasn't until the candelabra held nothing but short stubs of tallow that Mama finally said, I see a lantern, someone's coming. They hurried to the courtyard and watched a distant light, a small beacon of hope swaying in the darkness. The wagon came into view. Alfonso held the reins and Miguel the lantern. When the wagon stopped, Esperanza could see a body in the back, completely covered with a blanket. Where's Papa, she cried. Miguel hung his head. Alfonso didn't say a word, but the tears running down his round cheeks confirmed the worst. 
Mama fainted. Abuelita and Hortensia ran to her side. Esperanza felt her heart drop. A noise came from her mouth, and slowly her first breath of grief grew into a tormented cry. She fell to her knees and sank into a dark hole of despair and disbelief. Yeah. Mm. Because you feel sick, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think she does a really good job capturing that worry and anticipation. Definitely. And then another really sad moment in the book, too comes shortly after the father dies when the house burns down and things go from bad to worse. And earlier in the book, we'd learned that Esperanza would keep certain, I believe they were like gifts, right? Of like fancy tablecloths and linens that she was given for birthday presents and stuff. So it's it's a very sad scene though when the house burns down because you see all of these possessions that have meant so much to the family and that they've been saving just reduced to nothing overnight. And then Esperanza is kind of looking at what is left, dazed and hugging herself. Esperanza surveyed the surviving victims through twisted forms of wrought iron chairs, unharmed cast iron skillets, and the mortars and pestles from the kitchen that were made from lava rock and refused to burn. Then she saw the remains of the trunk that used to sit at the foot of her bed, the metal straps still intact. She stood up and hurried toward it, hoping for un milagro, a miracle. She looked closely, but all that remained were black cinders. There was nothing left inside for some day. I'm glad you mentioned that part. That part is very painful. It is. I also like the way that Miguel comes in and kind of knocks Esperanza down a peg or two when someone needs to. He has a class awareness and a political awareness in the beginning of the book that she does not because she's been sheltered from that because of her status as um, not only wealthy, but also as white. Her grandmother is a colonizer from Spain. And so she's described as having pale skin And one of the interesting things about the book is the ways in which her racial status changes when she comes to the U.S. And she's no longer perceived as white. She's perceived as Mexican. But um, when she was in Mexico, the daughter of a wealthy rancher, she is perceived as white. And Miguel is kind of drawing Esperanza's attention to this. He says... There is a Mexican saying, full bellies and Spanish blood go hand in hand. Esperanza looked at him and raised her eyebrows. Have you never noticed, he said, sounding surprised. Those with Spanish blood, who are the fairest complexions in the land, are the wealthiest. Esperanza suddenly felt guilty and did not want to admit that she had never noticed or that it might be true. Besides, they were going to the United States now, and it certainly would not be true there. Esperanza shrugged. It is just something that old wives say. No, said Miguel. It is something the poor say. Miguel knows it. Dropping some truth bombs. bombs. (laughs) So there is a scene where Esperanza and Miguel are traveling from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And they stop at Mr. Yakota, his market. He's from Tokyo. And he carries a lot of Mexican goods. And Esperanza says, Miguel, why must we always drive so far to shop at the Japanese market when there are other stores closer? And he says, some of the other market owners aren't as kind to Mexicans as Mr. Yakota, says Miguel. He stocks many of the things we need, and he treats us like people. 
and they have a conversation about how they're perceived as dirty and uneducated. And he says, uh, Americans see us as one big brown group who are good for only manual labor. At this market, no one stares at us or treats us like outsiders or calls us dirty greasers. My father says that Mr. Yakota is a very smart businessman. He's getting rich on other people's bad manners. Mm-hmm. But while they're at the market, which carries a lot of things like, you know, dried beans for frijoles, uh, chorizo, and also piñatas, Esperanza buys a little tissue donkey. And, you know, they have it filled with candy. And she says that she's buying it for Mama. And she's going to ask the nurses to put it near her bed. But while they're on their way back to camp, they give a ride to Marta and her aunt, who are who are no longer welcome at the main camp because they're calling for a strike. So they're essentially living in, I, I don't know how to, to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it's they call it a camp, but it's uh, they're living in squalor. Yes. Although yes, she does so. note that there's a real sense of camaraderie and kindness among the people there. Mm-hmm. You know, but they do have, they have men guarding the entrance. They're, they're on alert. But Esperanza, in one of her more grown-up acts in the novel, gives the piñata to a group of children who run up to them. And sometime after immigration comes and makes the sweep, Esperanza and Miguel drive by the farm and they see what's left. And it says, The field was still surrounded by the chain-link fence, but no one was protecting the entrance this time. All the evidence of people she had seen before was there, but not one person was to be seen. Laundry waved on the clothesline. Plates with rice and beans sat on crates and swarmed with busy flies. Shoes were lined up in front of tents as if waiting for someone to step into them. The breeze picked up loose newspapers and floated them across the field. It was quiet and desolate, except for the goat, still tied to the tree, bleeding for freedom. And they say, immigration has been here too. And they untie the goat, and Esperanza hopes quietly that Marta has been reunited with her mother and her aunt. And then the chapter ends with something colorful caught her eye. Dangling from a tree branch with the remnants of the little donkey pinata that she had given to the children. It's tissue streamers fluttering in the breeze. It had been beaten with a stick, its insides torn out. It's such a great imagery in that chapter. Yeah, that's one thing that Ryan does really well throughout the book, I think, is imagery and vivid detail. One of the academic articles about the book that I was reading commented on this pinata image, which, you know, of course, I think you can read as, as a metaphor for the striking workers. And in this particular article by Cara Keeling and Scott Pollard called Privilege and Exploitation, Food as Dual Signifier in Pamela Munoz-Ryan's Esperanza Rising, they said, uh, quote, in ordinary circumstances, the destroyed pinata would signify childhood joy and reinforce Mexican traditions. But in the empty camp, its signifying function shifts, symbolizing not only the, the defeat of the workers' efforts, but the defeat of the Mexican community to find for itself a just existence in the United States as laborers. So one of my favorite moments in the book comes at the end of the novel when Miguel and Esperanza go out into nature and listen to the heartbeat of the earth. This is something that Esperanza used to do with her father, but she hasn't done it since coming to the United States. And we get this image of Esperanza having kind of this 
like a vision almost yeah almost like a transcendent vision where i think is where we get the title of the book from too esperanza rising and so it says as the sun rose esperanza began to feel as if she rose with it floating again like that day on the mountain when she first arrived in the valley she closed her eyes and this time she did not careen out of control instead she glided above the earth unafraid she let herself be lifted into the sky and she knew that she would not slip away she knew that she would never lose papa or el rancho de las rosas or abuelita or mama no matter what happened she hovered high above the valley its basin surrounded by the mountains she swooped over papa's rose blooms buoyed by rose hips that remembered all the beauty they had seen. She waved at Isabel and Abuelita, walking barefoot in the vineyards, wearing grapevine wreaths in their hair. She saw Mama sitting on a blanket, a cacophony of color that covered an acre of zigzag rose. She saw Marta and her mother walking in an almond grove, holding hands. Then she flew over a river, a thrusting torrent that cut through the mountains. And there, in the middle of the wilderness, was a girl in a blue silk dress and a boy with his hair slicked down, eating mangoes on a stick, carved to look like exotic flowers, sitting on a grassy bank on the same side of the river. Esperanza reached for Miguel's hand and found it, and even though her mind was soaring to infinite possibilities, his touch held her heart to the earth. I just love how they end up on the same side of the river. Yes. Exactly. It's a great callback. And it's a reference to a trip that they took together as children by train. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of another one of those sweet moments where they seemed to other people to be equals and likely felt that way too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your family now, Terrence? I would love to tell you a little bit about my family. So I think that this story is very interesting for me personally because a lot of it reminds me of my own family's experience not like my immediate family but my grandfather and great-grandmother my grandfather was an, a mexican immigrant he came here when he was 11 years old and before that his family lived in oaxaca he is i think the oldest son of my great-grandmother whose name was ermelinda para salanueva who lived in oaxaca and was half Spanish, like Esperanza, and half Zapoteca. So Zapoteca are indigenous to Mexico. And her family was incredibly wealthy before the revolution, much like Esperanza's. They lived on a big ranch. And apparently my grandfather used to say that it was so big that you had to ride on horseback for several days to get off the property. And there is even supposedly a belief that Benito Juarez, the first indigenous Mexican president, was born on the farm as the son of field hands and that Ermelinda's father paid for him to go to seminary and then to law school, which is wow. an interesting theory. I have no idea if it's true, but that's what they say. So yes, they were incredibly wealthy. And then in the Mexican revolution, obviously they lost everything. This was probably like around the time my grandfather was born, which was around like 1910. And pretty soon after that, his father, so my great-grandfather, just vanished. And no one <laughs> knew where he went. And his last name was supposedly LaRue. But there is no evidence that that's true. We have figured out since then that that is made up. 
So my great-grandfather, we have since found out, was actually an American man who just traveled around America and Central America stealing from various women and making up names and stealing horses. I think he was actually on the run. That was why he was there, because he (laughs) had stolen horses. And his last name was not LaRue. That is complete BS. And I am not French. But anyway, so he... (laughs) Once they lost everything, he was like, I, I'm a dip. There wasn't a whole lot there to hold him. <laughs> so he ditched my great-grandmother and my grandfather and my great-uncle. And my great-grandmother traveled around the area selling the little goods that she had left. And there is a very famous story in my family. I love this story. Sarah, I've told you this one before. Yes. Of course. Yes. So she's traveling with my grandfather, Carlos, and his brother. And the train is stopped and robbed by bandits. She's got, you know, her, her jewels, necklaces, just the, the little that she has to sell. And she takes her hair and she puts it up in a big bun and she starts um, shoving things inside her hair to hide them. And then she turns and she looks over at my grandfather, who's probably like nine, and she takes his jaw and she pulls it down and she stuffs a handful of jewels in it and closes his mouth and goes, Carlos, don't swallow. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't find it. The bandits do not check her hair or Carlos's mouth and (laughs) they make it off with that. And then sometime later, when my grandfather is 11, she sort of just sends him off with, I don't know, like I don't even know if they're friends, but just people who are headed to America. And I think that was the last time he saw his mother. I don't know if ever or just for a very, very long time. I know he saw his brother again in adulthood. But yeah, my grandfather was just sort of shipped off to America from Mexico when he was 11. And that's the story. Riches to rags story. (laughs) Apparently when I was a child, I was, when I first heard this story, I was pretty peeved. It's like, wait. You're telling me that I was supposed to have been born into incredible wealth (laughs) and instead I have this? But now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, (laughs) never mind. (laughs) Where did your, where in the U.S. did your grandfather go when he went to America? Uh, New Jersey. Actually, no, not New Jersey, New York. He met my, and my grandmother was an Italian immigrant and they met, I don't remember if it was in New, New York or New Jersey, but he was just sort of dropped off in an orphanage. So I, I think a Catholic orphanage. So he was brought up mainly by nuns after that and would ran away quite a few times. He had mm-hmm. a rough time of it, mm-hmm. which then translated to him being a real dick. So, <laughs> you know, generational trauma. It is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm wondering what it was like for you as a kid when you read this book. Did you know that it had a that it was related to your family's personal history? Did you? I don't think so. I knew the train story. My grandfather was not a very great guy and Mm -hmm. didn't have a very good relationship with my father. So it's my aunt actually, who is sort of like the keeper of our family history. So I knew the train story, but I didn't really have enough of a, an understanding of like what they had had or what they had lost. I just knew the funny parts of it. But when I, when I sort of reheard this story, I think I asked about it more specifically when I was in college. And then I actually started thinking about this book. That is when I made the connection. Because it is like surprisingly, <laughs> the tie-ins are, are pretty close. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they end once they arrive in America. My grandfather and Esperanza went very different ways. You know, New York versus California, like city versus field worker. But it's an, an interesting story, and it meant that he was pretty far away from repatriation efforts. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's the story of my family. I know that he went back there in adulthood and saw his brother again, but I don't know if he ever saw his mother hmm. after that. And I guess no one ever saw his father again. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. I don't get the impression he was much missed. Yeah. Well, thank you it's for sharing cool. that. Yeah. Thanks for letting me share it. You're welcome. It's all getting cut, but it was nice to hear it. (laughs) All right. Well, I think while we're having fun, we should continue (laughs) on that vein and maybe have a word from us kids. I love it. Excellent. Let's hear from the youth of America. All right. So these reviews come from Dogo Books, which are reviews written by kids for kids. And this first review comes from slushy that's their username that's an adorable name i love that (laughs) i know right so they said this was the best book ever made i couldn't stop reading it the part that made me cry was that esperanza's dad died i was upset but and then he goes into or they go into spanish which is cool and it translates to keep up the good work with the book sigon con el buen trabajo con los libros then they go on to say this book made me happy at the middle slash end of the book her mom got sick from the sandstorm i was hoping and praying that the mom will be okay the part that scared me in the book is that when esperanza's house got on fire oh man i love the way we're bouncing back and forth Mm -hmm. from different sections i love that there is no clear like linear progression here i think this is great tangential love it (laughs) and then slushy tells us how esperanza can remember her dad is that Whenever it's Esperanza's birthday, her dad orders Esperanza dolls since it was her birthday. She hears upsetting news that her dad died, and she sees the doll that her dad ordered a doll for her birthday again, and the doorbell rang for her dad food that he always ordered. The person was holding Esperanza's dad's food. Esperanza had to break the sad news to delivery person that his dad's friend, they were crying, and that's what made me upset, but still, sigue haciendo libros como estos. Keep on making books like this. I have this book and I love it a lot. Five stars. <laughs> I love wow, the that energy. that is amazing. I like ran out of air listening to you read that. Didn't know if I was going to make it, I'll be honest. She's talking about the part where papayas arrive for the fruit salad and she has to tell the delivery man who is not actually delivery man it's like her dad's friend mm-hmm. but i love the way she tells it that's great in fact they should do a second edition of this book that's retold like this <laughs> no punctuation <laughs> an unnecessary luxury uh then this this is a very formal review from gavin lear this is an amazing book it is heartwarming and inspiring i give this book five stars because when i read this i was having a hard time and this book really helped me through that Five plus stars, and I recommend this to anyone having a difficult time. Kevin, I'm so sorry to hear that you were going through it. I know. I think it's great that this book was here for you in your hard time. There was a lot of reviews of kids saying that this book helped them during a difficult time or helped them keep hope, which I thought was so sweet because really sweet i feel like we talk a lot about music or art or poems or movies that adults go to when they are having a hard time but i don't know i I think we often don't think about kids as 
or we don't take their hard times as seriously. But it's nice to think about what kind of art is available and helpful mm-hmm. for them. Gavin. Oh, Gavin. I hope things are going better. Also, I hope that's not your real name and you didn't put your full name on the internet. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Is okay. I'm sorry. Quick tangent in uh, in honor of slushy. <laughs> Isn't it bananas? The way we grew up, and we were like, absolutely, do not put your full name on the internet. Like all this other stuff, you shouldn't do. And now we're just out here, like we're really just saying everything that comes to mind. You know, it would be so easy to murder me and to probably just steal my identity. Yeah. All right, but to anybody listening, literally, do not waste your time. <laughs> yeah, you don't want it. Yeah. What is it that Gene says in Bob's Burgers? No, thanks. I've seen it and I'm not impressed. (laughs) Yeah. I owe you my life. No, thanks. (laughs) I've seen it and I'm not impressed. (laughs) Anyway, back on subject. Bookworm15 says, I don't really know if I like this book. I like the topic, but they should get to the point. (laughs) What? I don't know. They don't sound like much of a bookworm to me, despite their name. Right? I'm get to what point? I really I don't thought know. the point was gotten to. Yeah. Are we like looking for the same point? Because I can understand if maybe we're we have different goals for where we think the plot should go. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry, bookworm fifteen. I'm gonna rate this review a D plus. <laughs> We've got one from Mabu Maxavusilla. This was a class read aloud and I got so attached. I highly recommend this amazing piece of art. This gets you sucked in only at page one. On top of that, so many things build up at once. When Papa dies, everything changes, not just for Esperanza, but for Miguel, Ramona, Hortensia, Alfonso. It is so sad on what happens. This deserves a five-star rating for making me and thousands of others readers feel so many emotions for all the characters. Keep pursuing your work as an author. You have really nice talent. Maybe someday I can write just like you. Five stars. Oh, Isn't that the cutest? That is adorable. I love how um, multiple kids have taken it upon themselves to encourage... Pam Munoz Ryan to keep writing. Yeah. You know? They're like, keep it up. It's very sweet. It's so keep cute. up the good work with the books. Los libros. <laughs> Next up. You wanna take E, e Pringles? Yeah. I would love to take E Pringles. E Pringles twenty three says, very good book about Anne Girl from Mexico, who is forced to travel to the United States because of a family tragedy. Her and her mom go through a marvelous adventure, and I loved it. Whew, not sure we read the same book, E. Pringles. <laughs> like, I really... Yes, the book has a, a happy-ish ending, but I would really hesitate to say that anyone, especially the mother, goes through a marvelous adventure. <laughs> she spends most of the book in a hospital bed, like, very nearly unconscious. No. <laughs> I had a marvelous time ruining everything. Valley yeah. fever. <laughs> <laughs> the dust spores in mama's lungs <laughs> we had a marvelous time ruining your lungs esperanza rolled up on the train it was sunny the dust clouds the in the air <laughs> took her mind, took her mind off. off her burned ranch <laughs> and the town said how did a upper class <laughs> 
widows Spanish do it. <laughs> the camp was charming, if a little gross. <laughs> There's only so far a little money goes. No money goes. <laughs> they cleaned out a horse stall and called it their house. <laughs> The last great Mexican dynasty, perhaps, is what oh my we could call. Um, yeah, I hope that you guys are Taylor Swift fans. Otherwise, you're probably... Yeah, this didn't make a lot of you sense. You probably turned this off. Can you imagine how unnerving that would have all been to listen to? Um, Shall we read Day 0723's review? Yeah, go for it. I decided to read this book because I am Hispanic, and I wanted to learn about other Hispanic culture, and also because this show's like, all you need is love from your family. You don't need money. And to, like, always try your best to be with your loved ones. And it sends a really good message. Five stars. That's cute. It is cute. (laughs) For sure. All you need is love. Money helps, though. Please don't let people tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. Don't let people trick you out of the things you deserve. (laughs) Right. By convincing you that there is some nobility to being impoverished. That is actually one thing about this book that I really like is that it does convey the message that family and love is the most important thing. But also, I think it portrays the labor struggle in a way that's very sympathetic to labor rights and to... Yeah. The organizers. And I had kind of forgotten that when I first started rereading it. And Mm -hmm. I was actually kind of peeved when Marta was reintroduced because at first I sort of felt like she was going to be a straw man. Same. Because I had, when I had read it, I hadn't had a lot of context for what was going on. So you just sort of read Marta as a bully. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I first started rereading it these past few weeks, yeah, like I said, I was concerned that she was going to be a straw man, you know, especially when the other workers were like, we want to work, you know, which is, you know, a, a valid sentiment. But I was afraid that they were just going to lean into that. And then I completely forgot that Pam Munoz Ryan turns it around. Because, again, Esperanza, like you said, Esperanza and Marta are both, they have the same goals, mm-hmm. which are to support their family and to have dignity and to have the means to survive and live as comfortably as they can and esperanza becomes more and more sympathetic to marta's cause and to the cause of the strikers as time goes on and you get the impression that i think i mean i can definitely see her growing up and becoming a labor activist like absolutely she she seems to see the problem very clearly she's a smart kid we're proud of her Mm -hmm. she comes a long way all the way to the other side of the river Ooh. <laughs> so our next review comes from Indra. <laughs> Just read. <laughs> Indra says, I really loved that book. It actually talks about how Esperanza's father dies and her uncles burn her house. Cool. <laughs> Five stars. Really makes it sound like she's endorsing the... Um, murder and arson which is cool (laughs) really not the takeaway but nope there's yeah there's a a certain edge to this review that makes me a little nervous (laughs) our next reviewer is i'm gonna say yalan but it's just y-l-a-n so i'm not positive but they say i do not know why but just found some ideas very repetitive and boring Papa's death was mentioned constantly throughout the book, but I honestly think the slave camp concept was decent. However, this book has real potential. Two stars. 
Slave camp concept? You mean like real worker camps? Like, what about it? This isn't sci fi. And I honestly thought the concept was decent. And it's unclear. I hope, I assume he means like as a plot device. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I like as a lived experience. I hope he's not just endorsing it. Yeah, here's a student who really I feel like could have benefited from, you know, some more contextualization. Yeah, for sure. Slave camp. Good God. However, this book has real potential. That is the most patronizing thing I've ever seen. I know. It's so annoying. A boy wrote this. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just know. Do you want to read the next one? Much more positive. Yes. So Ahala says, this book is great. You learn a lot about some workers and what they went. I think she means through, but she says thought. You go thought the life of Esperanza and how she went from riches to rages. Five stars. <laughs> and she does. And she, that's why I was like, I have to read this one. Because I know they mean from riches to rags, but the misspelling is so on point because Esperanza does just get angrier and angrier as she learns more and more about the injustices of her new country. And she goes from riches to rages. Man. (laughs) So one commenter started uh, what appears to be a little bit of a thread, actually. Chloe had a controversial take. She said, I had to read this book for school and I did not like it. I hated it. Uh, And then Ivy said, I read this book for school, too, and I loved it. The best book I read for school. And I'm in Chloe's class. I'm upset, Chloe. Five stars. Then reader A-A-A-A said, this book is so good. How can you hate it? I'm so disappointed. Uh, which sounds like Ivy, but it's probably not Ivy because Ivy then responded again and said, this book is so good. I read it for class and I'm in Chloe's class. How can you say that, Chloe? Five stars. So- There's a lot of tension in the group chat, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Chloe's making waves. She took her hot takes to dogo.com. I'm glad she did. Yeah. The girls are fighting. All the best drama. <laughs> Dogo Books is my favorite social media site. <laughs> I'm so glad that didn't go down along with Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Keep Mark Zuckerberg away from Dogo Books. <laughs> oh boy. Maria Levin said, when I read this book, Esperanza Rising, I loved it with all my heart. Just reading it. Esperanza Rising is now my favorite book. Now I now know not to judge a book by its cover. What? (laughs) I like that one because it ends with some (laughs) subtle shade towards the cover art. Right. Because it definitely implies that she thought she'd hate the book based on the cover. Like, that is deeply hurtful. The same person who illustrated this cover also illustrated the cover of Becoming Naomi Leon. And I hope they never see this, because this review is downright hurtful. And it's a lovely cover, by the way. Nothing wrong with it. It is. It's great. I used to practice. I loved the way they drew her hands and feet. And I used to try practicing drawing this cover as a kid. Mm-hmm. I forgot how much I liked this book. When I was in Spanish class, when we got to pick our own names, I chose the name Esperanza. Mm. And I would sit there trying to draw this book cover. And it was remarkably hard. So you know what? Joe Cepeda. Anyway, sorry, Joe. I think uh, Maria did you dirty. Yeah, that's a good cover. Shall we switch over to Common Sense Media? 
Yes. So our last review comes from Common Sense Media from Isabella Joy 19, who is 13 years old. And she says, made my entire class cry. One of my favorite books, like Tied with Harry Potter. We read this in my fifth grade class in Utah. And at one point in the book made everyone cry. Even the boys. Ha ha. <laughs> made my uncle and parents read it. One million out of 10 recommend. This book gives a great moral lesson, and three years later to this day, I still remember. That's so cute. That is so cute. I love <laughs> that it made later. the entire class cry, even the boys. Ha ha. Ha ha. That is really cute. Can you imagine, though, Terry, what would you do if you read a book to your students and every single student in the class cried? Wouldn't you feel like you'd done something wrong? Well, it's hard for me to say. I think I teach six-year-olds, so most of them are not really, like, a crying out of being moved emotionally stage. <laughs> so, yes, I think if I did read the bo a book and it brought them all to tears, I would be a little panicked. <laughs> I think fifth grade, I might feel proud, but I am really working towards not making every single one of my students cry at this age level. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if it's the, I mean, it's got to be. Actually, it could be many parts of this book. This book is um, an emotional roller coaster. Definitely when the grandmother gets reunited with family, yeah. that'll get that you. That part. Ooh. All right, then. So I found this very insightful article written by Christina Rhodes called Corporeal, Phenomenological, and Activist Transformations in Pam Munoz Ryan's Esperanza Rising. And it was published in Children's Literature Association Quarterly in spring 2021. So a recent take on the book. One of the things that I liked that it talked about was the ways in which activism plays a role in the book. And it talks about how the novel delivers a portrait of racism and especially Mexican repatriation. But it says it also provides, quote, a counterpoint to, to that xenophobia and racism by illustrating the early days of labor movements led by Latinxes. In particular, Esperanza Rising highlights the roots of what would eventually become the Chicano movement and the labor movements helmed in particular by women. And that is one thing that I really like about the book is how focused it is on women and mm. the leadership of women specifically, not just women as mothers and as caretakers as Ramona is, but also women like Marta and her mother and Esperanza. As revolutionaries. Um, yeah, women as, as revolutionaries, especially since women, especially women of color, are often selectively erased from these kinds of political histories. This article quotes Gloria Anzaldúa and... Christina Rhodes says, Esperanza and the other characters in the novel embody the dictum by Anzaldúa, I change myself, I change the world. That is, I think, kind of what makes me feel like this novel, the story to me does not feel at all like it's over because what we've really seen is like this first step in Esperanza's transformation towards, I mean, consciousness, really. And I can see her doing a lot more with that knowledge as she grows up. Absolutely. So this article also talks about the various ways in which Esperanza's mind is transformed, her consciousness is transformed over the course of the novel, but also the ways in which um, she's physically transformed as she goes from being a wealthy daughter of a ranch owner to a field worker in California. 
Um, and that change is physical in the ways in which the labor affects her body. You know, we see that especially in her hands. There's a lot of focus on the ways in which her hands are dried out and calloused by the work. And we also see that in the ways in which her racial identity shifts depending on the context, or at least the racial identity in which the people in power perceive her as having. So Christina Rhodes writes that Esperanza Rising's racial coding of its protagonist complicates the conflation of whiteness and citizenship. Esperanza's material body is racialized white. Abuelita, her maternal grandmother, is an immigrant from Spain. Further, Esperanza is described as having the same black hair, wavy and thick, and the same dark lashes and fair, creamy skin as her mother. In the United States, however, the intersections of her privileged identity are erased once her immigration papers are stamped Mexican national. Although nothing inherently physical changes about her whiteness, Esperanza comes to recognize the changes made to her body by her crossing of the border. Once pejoratively told by Miguel that her Spanish blood meant she had the fairest complexion in the land, Esperanza soon realizes she is not coated white in the United States. Rather, it is now the American Okies, also working in the migrant camps, who are, despite their desperate conditions, regarded by the state, farm owners, and dominant imagination as the fairest in the land. Another interesting article that I found was written by Cara Keeling and Scott Pollard. I mentioned this article earlier when we were talking about the pinata. So their article focused specifically on the role that food plays in this book. It's called Privilege and Exploitation, Food as Dual Signifier in Pamela Munoz Ryan's Esperanza Rising and was published in a journal that we actually talk about a lot on this podcast, The Lion and the Unicorn. And it was published in September 2016, which kind of goes back to the point that I was making that there's still a lot of conversation and academic and education spaces about this book, even though it's not a new book, because I think it's... I'm not surprised. I mean, the themes, I think, are rising again, Mm -hmm. more so in these last years, probably, especially since the Trump presidency. Right. There's lots of parallels in the, if you think about immigration, racism, exploitation, labor rights, all of those are still issues that are very much alive today in the U.S. So it remains a very relevant text, even as a piece of historical fiction. So in this essay, they talk about how the book shifts focus from the consumption of food in the beginning, where the discussion of food is all around what Esperanza enjoys eating and her favorite foods and her birthday meals and all of those things. And then the focus of the book shifts to the production of food as Esperanza shifts from being more of a consumer to a laborer. And so the shift in the focus of food reflects that shift in class. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book was that it's one of the only children's books I can think of reading or having access to in my childhood that talked about labor rights in a really specific way. Yeah. Seconded. And so that's something that this article focuses on is the ways in which this book talks about labor specifically. And so it says, quote, Devra Weber notes that many Mexicans who immigrated to California during this period brought with them the knowledge and expectations of the Mexican Revolution, including the labor struggles of unions and strikes by urban workers and rural campesinos. The mindset, quote, facilitated the transmission of ideas and organizations that would form a model for workers well into the 1930s in California, thereby intertwining the histories of farm labor in Mexico and the United States. 
Although Mexican workers and unions led a variety of successful strikes throughout the state during this period to counter worsening wages and working conditions, organized Mexican labor had lost its effectiveness by 1934 because of the fierce tactics, violent and nonviolent, used by growers to stop the strikes. And so that's something that I think is also important about this book is the way that it deals with the issue of capitalist exploitation in a way that feels honest and historically accurate. As I was reading the book, I think it was really tempting to hope or expect that the ending would include something about strikers' demands being met, because that would be a really satisfying ending and would send a great message to kids about fighting for what's right, you know? But that's not actually what happened. You know, we, we do see some of these demands being met, but it's decades after the 1930s. And so I think that the book does a good job accurately portraying the forces that these people are up against. And I think in that way, it keeps it from being an overly sentimental kind of squishy book because yeah, it's very honest about the fact that that the weapons that the farm owners and the U.S. government wields are just more powerful than the weapons of a marginalized group or a collection of marginalized groups. Especially when these people in power hold, you know, the resources that these people rely on. Right. I mean, you have people who financially cannot Mm -hmm. or will not strike because they know the consequences. Right. And the people in power understand how to use uh, racialized differences to their advantage. Mm -hmm. Like Marta talks about how the growers don't want us banding together for higher wages or better housing. The owners think if Mexicans have no hot water that we won't mind as long as we think no one has any. They don't want us talking to the Okies or anyone else. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this book does a really good job demonstrating and explaining inequality to kids. I think so, too. All right. Well, shall we move on to lessons? Let's do it. So in terms of lessons, I think a serious lesson that this book offers is how real social and political change requires solidarity among workers and across racial, ethnic, and class lines. It doesn't fall into the category of books that I feel like are like, it only takes one person to make a difference. Yeah. You know, kind of... Like you said, I mean, it doesn't have the whole... Mm -hmm. The ending of like, we did it, guys. Mm -hmm. We saved the library. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it kind of uh, avoids some of the easiness and cheesiness of... I'm thinking like maybe how more of an American Girl storyline might handle something like this. Like the focus on individuality. This book really, really emphasizes the importance of community and that no one can accomplish anything alone. And in fact, when Marta, who is a great organizer and leader, is alone uh, in that one scene where she's hiding under the crate, she's in great danger until Esperanza reaches out and helps her. So you can't do anything by yourself. And going off of that, of course, as we've talked about earlier in this episode, the notion that a lot of the problems that we face in this country today are not new at all. We see the roots of all of these conflicts in this book. Yeah, and I think that's really important, too, for kids to know that because I think it's easy to have, and I mean, adults also have this, but like a very simplified view where it's like all of our problems are Trump's fault. 
it's it's so much more complicated than that and to understand that when people like trump are acting they're acting in a, a legacy of cruelty that exactly because it lets you pass the buck if you want to believe that america is an inherent you know this idea mm -hmm. of like this is not who we are mm -hmm. you know and the reality is this is unfortunately very much who we are right these are the crimes that this country is built off of and i think that this sets kids up for success in understanding the way that racism and xenophobia and exploitation are deeply ingrained in our lives today for sure um on a less serious note keep a close eye on your in-laws <laughs> that's a very serious note sarah how can you say that it's true um, listeners watch out for villainous brothers in law <laughs> especially if they are mayors or bankers yeah right those are uh i'm sorry super suspicious jobs also don't be rude to your servant because you might lose all your money and he might become kind of hot. So, you know, we didn't really get into this, but there's definitely some romantic tension between Esperanza and Miguel. We didn't talk about it because I think it's like the least interesting thing in the book. But I think that their relationship in terms of their relationship to each other, because like in terms of class and race is very interesting. I don't really care if they fall in love, but... That's neither here nor there. <laughs> but it is kind of... They do have a, a cute moment at the end where they... I think they hold hands, right? Or Yeah. Yeah. And just saying, Esperanza probably felt pretty silly about thinking she was better than him because... Yeah. So he grew up to be mad hot, and now she's dressed in this yellow outfit that she hates. <laughs> yep. Embarrassing. Yep. So the tables can always turn on you. It's important to know. Your servants can become hot. It's happened to me. I'm kidding. Just to be very clear. <laughs> oh, man. Also, um, don't feed babies fresh plums because it will make them have Ooh. diarrhea. They will shit all over the place. Esperanza didn't uh, know. I didn't know this. Me neither. <laughs> this is just to say I have taken the plums that were in your freezer. <laughs> And fed them to a baby. <laughs> Forgive, Forgive me. <laughs> it smells so bad. <laughs> Lupe and Pepe are the unsung stars of this book. They are so cute. I love their names, too. I know. All right. Well, right. is it time to rate this book? I think it is time to rate this book. I don't know what we're going to rate it out of. Oh. Asparagus? Uh, dust spores! <laughs> Had a marvelous time. Time ruining everything. <laughs> All right. Shall we? Yeah. So we'll be writing this book out of 10 dust spores. And I would give this book a... You no might remember dust spores from almost killing Esperanza's mother. Yes, famously in her lungs. I would give this book 9 out of 10 dust spores because I think largely the writing is really lovely. I really like the plot. Yeah, and I and I love that it, I love its focus on these historical events. My critiques of the book would be that I think that sometimes the dialogue feels a little wooden and stiff. Um, and I think that that comes from having to provide readers with historical context in a way that's accessible. 
but it does come off sometimes as like a little didactic in a way that feels inauthentic. Yeah, so that would be my critique, is that sometimes the characters don't feel like real people as much as they could. But overall, I think it's an excellent book. I second that. I second that 100%. I will also give this book 9 out of 10 death spores. I think it's terrific. I appreciated, as Sarah said, the focus, the topic being something, especially for children's lit. We know that a lot of American adults don't know a lot about repatriation and uh, the treatment of Mexican migrant workers, but to to have this in a book aimed for young readers, I think is really terrific. Nine out of 10 dust spores, easy. Very good. All right. All right, Sarah, where can they find us? So you guys can find us on Twitter at reading underscore recess and on Instagram at reading underscore recess. You can send us emails at reading during recess pod at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening to another episode and you will hear from us again soon. And all you revolutionaries out there, stay reading.